Erev Tov, good evening. We are back to the writings of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. We are finishing up, we're actually page 19, so it should be page 19 and 17 in your PDF. The top of the page should say Yudalev, Yudbet, Yudgimel, Yudalev. The last letters there should be Yudtet in the middle of the page. Last week we spoke about Sephardim and Ashkenazim, the Sifrei Torah. The problem is how in Amsterdam the Sephardim and Ashkenazim would not be called up to each other's Torah. Uh, Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin already discussed that and, and showed how our Sifrei Torah are kosher for each other. We spoke about last week how if we don't at least accept that, then the, we're going to have an even greater divide in Am Yisrael than we already have. I'm now next to the next uh, section, which is Yudtet. 19, number 19 on the list out of 51. Sefaradim. Sefaradim en medagdekin b'midat ha-peot shal rosh. The Sefaradim are not particular about the size of the peot that are left on the corner of the head. No, I'm talking about peot. Sideburns. And both the Ashkenazim and the Temanim are particular about this. Now when we say today Ashkenazim, I'm not sure we're referring to all the Ashkenazim. I really don't think so. And I mean by those who observe Halakha. <clears throat> but definitely there are many Ashkenazim and many Temanim that this is something they're particular about. Whereas some might think of it as some stylistic difference. You know, some people had long periods, some did not. They had different cultures, different places, different looks. Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin believes this is much more than just a culture, as he tells us in footnote 62. At the bottom of the page, he writes, Shi'u ha-peot ashitat rambam The Rambam, his measurement of peot, Chazal lo natanu bahem shi'u. Our rabbis did not give a specified measurement about how large your peot must be. And he heard from the elders that the peot have to at least be four hairs. Four hairs. But in our version of the Rambam, it says 40 hairs. That's quite a large difference. Times 10. Is it four or is it forty? Ayin sham na kezav mishne uvebet yosef sham uvebach. Look at the kezav mishne. That's Maran and the Rambam, the Bet Yosef, the Bach, Rabbi Yosirkes. Vayin la gaon la chadam sofer. And look what the chadam sofer writes. Uminhag haari. And if you wish to look for the custom of the Arizan, timtzehu b'shar kavanot. You can find it in the shar kavanot. Now, I don't recall what Arizal writes in Shara Kavanot. I do remember the Ben Ishchai talking about having long peot and making sure they don't show. So making sure that they hide behind one's ear, they don't come out from behind the ear. It could be that the Arizal, if, this has been a very long time, uh, it could be that Arizal is talking about not having peot, touching a beard, there's some, something like that, but I, this is so out of my department, I'm not dealing with it right now. And not all of the Ashkenazim were so particular about having very long peot, says Rabbi Shadov Gagin. The Galicianers and the Hungarians, they were the Jews primarily who had long peot. And this is the custom of the Yemenite Jews. I'm very curious to know about peot in Ashkenaz before the Hasidim. So today it's become a hallmark look of Hasidim to have long peot. Not all Hasidim, by the way. There are some Hasidiyot who don't. So for example, uh, Chabad doesn't have long peot. Uh, my wife's Hasidut, Karlin, not necessarily, maybe depending where you're from, but uh, that's not part of their look. I'm not sure what those people did before, if this came about with Hasidut, or those were areas that had it, and that's why it spread so much. I don't know. And the Temanim, it's very well known that the Temanim called their peot. Anyone know what the Yemenites called their peot? Simanim. Very good. Simonim. Simanim. This is a, a sign. Presumably a sign that I'm Jewish. If you were in Yemen, so everybody has beards and long robes. 
How do you know a Jew? A Jew has peot. Um, why, where, I did see an article recently, recent, very recently, an academic article, that researched certain communities in North Africa that had long peot also. Certain communities in North Africa that had long peot. I'm happy to send that article. It might be in Hebrew. I'm, I don't remember what language it's in. It might be in Hebrew. I'm happy to send it out. If someone will remind me after the shiur, I will post it to our Google Classroom. The Pelio Etz, Papo. He writes that a person should not be embarrassed to grow out long peot like a tamichacham. That's what he writes. Long peot like a tamichacham. Don't think it's showing off. Don't think it's very important that your children they can have long, long peot. I don't know. Uh, you have peot. You don't have peot. This may or may not be based off of the version of the Rambam that is in front of the community that, that has these customs. Already on page half on the top of page twenty. So that will be eighteen in your PDF. Sefaradim. And Megalchin Sa'ar Hakala Biyom Chupata Keminhag Ashkenazim. The Sephardim do not shave off the hair of the Kala, of the bride, from her head on the day of her Chupa, like the Ashkenazim do. What on earth is Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin talking about? And maybe for this reason alone, it's worth becoming Sephardim, no? just to make sure that you can keep your hair when you get married. What is he talking about? Are you familiar with any Jewish communities where a woman on the day of their wedding shaved their head? That's a new one. That's a new one, Jonathan. You haven't been around long enough. The Hasidim. Certain Hasidim. Wait, Nava, you mentioned a group also? Yes, I'm okay. So there's a group of Hasidim, groups, or should I say, plural, of Hasidim, who shave their head. You know, I'm, I'm very particular. I, in general, don't talk about Sneut and women's issues. and I, It's my wife's department as a whole. So forgive me, I'm broaching the subject lightly, but I intend to mean no halachic ramifications for what I'm speaking about right now. There are communities, in many Hasidic communities, where it's expected on the day of a woman's wedding, that they come, they being the mother, the grandmother, the aunt, I don't know who is in charge of this, and they literally shave her bald. And she doesn't have hair, for when? For the rest of her life. For the rest of her life. This is a custom that is so common, I'm certain in the United Kingdom, in, in the areas in which there are Hasidim, but in New York, in Jerusalem, in Brebach, there are many, 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 many people that this is their custom. Where does it come from? I had always heard something interesting, but Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin writes something different, as always. And let's look at the footnote 63. <clears throat> Rabbi Gagin mentions that already in Talmudic times, there was a custom, already we find in the Talmud, that women would wear, what's a pe'anochrit? What's a pe'a? It's a wig. A wig. And what is a nukhrit? Foreign. Yeah, a foreign, meaning a non-Jewish hair wig. Seems like that's what it means. Mishvil ma'alad basar. Why do they used to wear it? So it would look like she was a woman of, of flesh. Listen, there are different times and different styles and different places. And once upon a time, this was the look that people were going for. If you actually look in the Gemara here, it seems to be what some people might call extensions. I don't know much about hair, but it seems like people take other people's hair and sew it into their hair, so it looks like they have more hair. Yeah. So this is already mentioned in the Talmud, it's not a new thing. If you look in Masechet Shabbat on page 64b, look at Rashi over there. There's an interesting halakha, we just read about this last week. I'm not getting into the conversation about why a man can uh, annul his wife's vows, and that's a conversation for a different shoe in a different place. But working with the assumption of the Torah that a man can, can uproot his wife, annul his wife's vows. By the way, which kind of vows can a man annul? Anything he wants? A husband, he can annul every one of his wife's vows? 
No. No. Rather, what? There are two things. Maybe you know more. I know too. I don't know specifically, but I know matters related to the family. Okay. So matters, when we say family, matters relating to him and her. Things that would get in the way of their relationship. Two, this is connected, but slightly different. Anything that would affect her mental or spiritual well-being. Yeah, anything that would affect her mental or spiritual well-being. Halafel, it's always when he teaches this parasha, speaks a lot about the importance of spouses in general, not just to take care of each other physically, but to make sure that people are taking care of each other emotionally, spiritually, one's mental health. Who's going to take care of that except for the, the person who knows you best, who lives with you all the time, who feels everything that you feel? If you're not on the lookout, so who's on the lookout? It's a responsibility. So much so the Torah allows one to annul someone else's vow because they feel that it will be to the detriment of that person. So one of the things, if it gets in the way of their relationship, in Masech Nazir, Chavchet Amud Bet 28b, it says that if a woman vows to shave her head, a man is allowed to annul that vow. The reason being, because it makes her, it makes her look makes her look nivul. It disgraces her. And because of that, he can tell, no, don't shave your head. What Rabbi Shem Gagin is doing here is something very subtle. And this is maybe not so subtle. He's telling you that this custom, he doesn't care why it exists or where it comes from. But according to the Talmud, this custom of removing a woman's hair is a very degrading act to a woman. And he doesn't approve of it. He's not, he's not a fan of this. This does not make him uh, happy. And he's telling you exactly, exactly what he thinks about this minhag. Uh, says Rav Gagin, I have not found one source for this minhag. Rabbi Gagin is the man who writes volumes and volumes of books on minhagin. He can't find you one source for a minhag. Something tells you, is this really a minhag? I mean, everything in Judaism leaves some kind of paper trail. He said, I can't find the trail. I, I don't know where it is. He can't find it. He said, I can't even find who were the people who instituted for which group of Ashkenazim. I mean, this is an Ashkenazi custom. But which Ashkenazim? Which rabbis made this, this decree here? And I don't know the name of this professor, but when I asked... Professor Yitzchak Markun. Hodiani, he told me, This custom has been known in the cities of Poland. Hundreds of years already. And when Poland came under Russian rule. In 1851. In the rule of Nikolai I. He prohibited them from shaving their heads on the day of their wedding. That the rabbis had to write, that to seal, stamp their names, that they agree, that it's forbidden for them to shave the heads of the Jewish woman. And any rabbi or community who's caught shaving the heads of their wives before they get married, they will have to pay a fine of five silver rubles. And the rabbi of the city will receive a very severe punishment. It's a very unusual thing. Why do you think the Russians care so much that the Polish rabbis are shaving Jewish women's heads? The whole story doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'm going to be honest with you. Look at the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch. It's interesting if you want to see what the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch say over there. That I will be able to discover which year this Takana was mysteriously created. I asked some of my friends, the Ashkenazi rabbis, presumably here in Europe, and they did not know what to answer me.
They did not know what to answer me. So the Bishop of Gagin, this entire custom is shrouded in mystery. I don't know the reason for it. But here you learn one thing, that Sepharadim definitely did not do this. Sepharadim definitely did not do this. I'll say one thing that I did hear, and this I heard only, I, I guess from as authoritative of the source of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. I heard this from someone who told us that the reason why Hasidim shaved their heads before they got married is because there was a, a certain governor or a general, every version has a different person, who would rape these women once they would be married. And in order to make their wives less attractive or not attractive at all to the, the whatever general or governor was, they had this custom of shaving their heads. Let's pretend for a moment that this is true. Let's say that that's why. I don't understand why in the year 2021, when there's nobody uh, doing this, then why people are still shaving their heads. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you an answer to this. Has anybody else here heard an answer for why certain people shave their heads? If the Rabbanit was here, I'm sure she would help us out. Okay, have a dig around. I'm sure it's an issue. Why certain Hasidic communities have this, I'm, I feel so bad calling it a custom. The custom is definitely not. But this custom that women shave their heads from when they're married. Because of the mikvah, isn't it? Maybe. I don't, I don't have a good answer. I, I have heard that, actually. Because of the mikvah? Because of the mikvah, they have to, yeah, they have to put the net on the hair. So they rather not have the hair. Okay. Is it to do with the Zohar? Is it kind of, is it in the Zohar or something? The Zohar, you want to mention Zohar. We talk about Zohar. Zohar talks about how it's forbidden to shave one's head. The Zohar talks about, but the Zohar mentions that if you don't have enough hair on your head to hold onto it with your fingers, then all the kilipot, all these evil forces in the world attach themselves to your head and all kinds of things like that. So if there anything, the Zohar would say not to shave one's head. But that's for men, how about the women? Same thing. Men and women are both human beings. I don't have a good answer. You're welcome to look around and ask. I cannot tell you from the people that I know that have come through the table of my wife and I how traumatic of an experience this is for thousands of people. And it's not something that our religion even asks for or demands from anyone. Uh, but somehow people are taught that this is what makes them... And for the men, it's also traumatic. You ever been somewhere and you see all these men with shaved heads? It's a very unusual thing. It also doesn't look normal at all. I, mean, I don't know the halakha, you have to look normal. But when I look, I don't see anything that I understand. So let's keep going. In Kavalif. I love Rabbi Shantok again, and now he takes us from one thing to the next, and I, I don't know how we made this list in which order, but Sephardim, they do not recite on the four cups of wine by the Pesach Seder. Sephardim only recite on the first cup and on the third cup. So the first cup is the one we use for Kiddush, and the third cup is the one we use for the blessing after the meal. Ashkenazim mevachin al kolkos v'kos, and Ashkenazim recite a blessing on every single cup. Meaning, on one borei pragefen, two borei pragefen, three borei four, like that the whole way through. Every cup has its own borei pragefen. Does anyone here have a different custom from what's written right here? Any Sephardim who recite hagefen on all the cups, any Ashkenazim who recite a blessing only on two cups? It's one of those things you don't always think about. You just do whatever it says in the Haggadah while you're doing the Haggadah. But let's check. This is a, a very interesting study in Halakha. I didn't want to bring it up back in the day when I was teaching the class on Maran the Shulchan Aruch because this is one of those classic instances where it's very difficult to understand why Maran rules one way in the Shulchan Aruch when every clue and sign along the way should have told us not to rule that way. Let's look at what I'm talking about. If you look at footnote 64. 
רבי יעקב, the son of רבנו אשר, the ראש. The two writes, בשם הריף, in the name of רבי יצחק אלפסי, ורבנו ניסים גאון, ורב עמר גאון, והרמב״ם, ואבי עזרי. In the name of all of these rabbis, for me the most important on this list, the Rif and the Rambam. No disrespect to the others, but the Rif and the Rambam. That when you drink the second cup, You recite on the second cup, Like the Sephardim or like the Ashkenazim. All of these rabbis say that you recite a blessing on the second cup of wine. Is that like the Sephardim? Or is that like the Ashkenazim? What do the Sephardim do? They say on which cup? On the first and the third. Ashkenazim say on the first, second, third, and fourth. So this opinion, the Rambam, the Rif, the, the one that the two brings, that's the Ashkenazi custom or the Sephardic custom? I'm asking you a backwards question. Ashkenazi. Meaning the, the Rambam is Ashkenazi now. You understand? The Rif is doing the Ashkenazi custom. On every cup he recites and the Asher, the Ashkenazi rabbi in Spain, his opinion is that you only recite it on the first cup and then meaning the third cup also. And Maran, Rabbi Yosef Karo, in his code of Jewish law, Pasak Keharosh, he rules like the Rosh. Uvisifrenu Keter Shem Tov. Chenagimen, Dibarnu Barukab Mitzwaze. Now, here he reads page 65, and my Keter Shem Tov is on page 69. If I could briefly read you the words, I didn't attach it as a PDF here, but if I could briefly read you his words, he says, Says Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin, "V'ani lo avina, and I don't understand. Madu Amaran Abet Yosef, why Maran Rabbi Yosef Karo, azav et kol divrei harishonim. He left all of the rishonim. Shekulam onim v'omrim. All of them say shetzarich levarech al kokos v'chos that everyone has to make a blessing on every cup of wine. V'nigrar achrei ri v'harosh v'rav kohen tzedek." And he went after three rabbis, namely the Rosh, an Ashkenazi rabbi. Im Harif, v'harambam, v'rav Amon Goon, v'rav Netorai, v'rav Shrira, v'rav Haibno, v'hasmag, v'avi Ezri, v'akonbo, v'arokeach, v'od. All of those rabbis paskum, l'halacha, l'varech al kolkos v'kos, v'samchu al had ravina. U'vifrat sh'midivrei harada, even in the writings of the Rada. Rabbi, David, Abu Draham. Abu Draham. Mashma, it's apparent that It is obvious that in the Spain before Maran, this was the custom. How was Maran not afraid to rule against all of these Chachamim? I don't have an answer for you right now. This question is problematic in so many reasons. One, aside from the fact that the Rambam and all of this, this one myriad of Chagamim rule that you recite the blessing on each cup, what is Maran's formula? Maran has three rabbis he looks at when he rules the halakha. What are the three rabbis he looks at? Who are they? The Rambam, the Rif, and the Rosh. Rambam, Rif, Rosh. Very good, Jordan. So what happens here? When, when there's an argument between the three of them, he always rules according to the majority, two over one. Here you have the Rambam and the Rif. Both say you recite a blessing on each cup. And only the Rosh says you don't. And Maran rules like the minority even out of his own list of three. Forget out of the list in general. Out of his own list of three, Maran rules like the minority. I don't have an answer for you. I can tell you, I can tell you. Yeah, Jordan? Could that have been what the Kabbalists of Spock were doing at the time, and he was just conforming to the general practice? You know, what it could be is that that really became the prevalent thing among Sephardim. 
You know, Hara Peretz, Hara attitude is Maran generally doesn't just give in because of consensus. He normally gives in because he thinks something is right. The simplest answer I could tell you is that Maran is concerned about reciting a blessing in vain. Even if all these rabbis say, so there's one rabbi says you shouldn't, maybe that's a good enough reason to be afraid of saying Hashem's name in vain. Maybe. Yeah, I'm just saying, maybe. Yes, we have to look there, what happened there. I can tell that in Israel, there's a rabbi. I don't know anything about the politics here. I just know that there are politics. There's a, a rabbi somewhere in the central part of Israel. His name is Harav Yitzchak Barda. Harav Yitzchak Barda wrote a Haggadah, and in his Haggadah, he ruled that Sephardim should recite a blessing on every cup of wine, like the Rambam. And Rabbi Vali Yosef slammed him in public, wrote about him. He's a chotel machdit rabim. He's a sinner who's causing others to sin. All of these sefaradim are now saying God's name in vain. And, and I have a hard time ruling against Maran. I have a hard time saying that somebody who's following the Rambam and the Rif is saying God's name in vain. I don't know. Now, the Yemenites, the Yemenites follow the Rambam. So here it's a no-brainer. But when the Shulchan Aruch reaches Yemen, it starts to make problems because you find that the Yemenite community, at least among some, like the Shami community, that some things are like the Rambam, some things are like the Shulchan Aruch, and like Rabbi Ratzon Arusi pointed out in my Maran class, I read from him in class number two or three that I gave at the Chavurah, that sometimes the same group of Yemenites who try to follow the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch end up doing two things that contradict each other because you're trying to do two things that are not compatible with each other. But... Listen, I think there are bigger crises in the Jewish world than whether or not we, we say blessing on four cups or blessing on two cups. But it is an interesting point. Look at the next paragraph, Rabbi Shev Dovgagin, on page 20 or 18 of your PDF. Above, I brought to Mihata Taz the wonder of the Taz, the, the bewilderment perhaps of the Taz. Regarding Hanukkah candles. That it seems, at least, that the Sephardim are following the Ashkenazi authorities and the Ashkenazim are following the Sephardic authorities. That the Sephardim are following an opinion of the Rosh, an Ashkenazi rabbi, against all of the Sephardic rabbis who say to recite a blessing on every cup. And ironically, you find that the Ashkenazim are fulfilling the opinion of all of the Geonei Svarad, all of the giants of Svarad. Somebody wants to write an essay, I'm sure someone has, but I would love to see it if you find one, on why and how and how these things happen, but it, it is what it is. Today, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I would tell you that any Sephardic Haggadah you look at, with the exception of those that exclusively follow the Rambam, recite only a blessing in the first cup and the third cup. Jordan, does Chacham Sassun have a Haggadah or only a Sidu? Only the Sidor. I'd be very. Uh, my rabbi, Rabbi Solomon, who's his Mesumach, has a, has a Haggadah for his community. I tried to run and go find it real quick to, to look it up because I couldn't remember off the top of my head. And what does it say there? Do you remember? Did you find it? I, I, I couldn't. I could okay, okay when, if you get an answer, I would love to hear from you later after the class. All right. Absolutely. Uh, let's go up to Chavbet. Sephardim recite a Shekhyanu only once on the first night of Purim when they read the Megillah and only on the first day of Rosh Hashanah when they blow the Shofar. Ashkenazim recite Shekhyanu both in the nighttime of Purim when they read the Megillah and the morning of Purim when they read the Megillah and they recite Shekhyanu maybe on both days of Rosh Hashanah. I don't know, it's been many years since I prayed with Ashkenazim for high holidays. Anyone know what Ashkenazim do, high holidays? On the second day of Rosh Hashanah, do they say Shekhyanu also? Presumably, if he's bringing it up, presumably that's the case. Uh, 65, in footnote 65. Ayen Aruch. Look at the Shulchan Aruch. You should not recite the Shekhyanu on the second day. Unless the first day of Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbat. So then why if the first day of Rosh Hashanah falls out on Shabbat, you say a Shekhyanu on the second day, on Sunday? Because you don't blow the shofar. Very good, because the custom is not to blow the shofar 
on Rosh Hashanah that falls out on Shabbat. And because of that, we recite Shekhyanu whenever the first time it is to blow the Shofar. So when Maran says you cannot recite Shekhyanu on the second day, it's only in the case where the second day is the second time you're blowing the Shofar. But if the second day is the first time you're blowing the Shofar, then that wouldn't be the case. By the way, this whole idea of not blowing the Shofar, because uh, on Shabbat, because maybe we'll carry the Shofar, well, there's different, you know, this whole understanding here. It's a biblical commandment. It's a Torah commandment. If I'm not mistaken, the Rif, maybe I think it's the Rif. The Rif writes that in his Bet Adin, in Morocco, they would blow the Shofar on Rosh Hashanah, on Shabbat. You don't need a Sanhedrin, you just need a Bet Adin. That's what you need. A Bet Adin, meaning a responsible group of Chachamim that will make sure that no law is violated while you are blowing the Shofar. Now obviously that's not what is done. But I'll tell you, when I was in Yerushalayim, so in Yerushalayim they have this uh, kind of revived Sanhedrin. They call them the nascent Sanhedrin. Now, opinions on it are not, not important. They blew the shofar. Blew, yeah. yeah they, they, came, they did Tekiah shofar on the first day of Roshana that fell down on Shabbat in the old city. So they came to the old city and they, they had a shofar blowing. And I, you know, I wasn't there, but I heard about it after Roshana. And I asked Arab Peretz, Arab Peretz, would you have gone? He said, I would have gone. How would you have gone? He said, this, I said listen, I'm not blowing the shofar, so I did nothing wrong, right? Meaning I didn't do it. The only thing that might have happened is that I heard a shofar on the first day of Oshana. I didn't do anything, I just heard the shofar. So the whole world didn't get to hear the shofar, and I got to fulfill a biblical commandment to hear the shofar on, uh, on the Oshana, the fellow on Shabbat. No, we, we don't blow the shofar here on Shabbat. I'm just telling you, that this is something that should be talked about. And the Ramah's opinion is, There you go, that's the answer. That you recite Shekhyanu on the second day, no matter what happens on the first day. And the custom of the Sephardim in Algier, They are like the Ashkenazim, and they say the blessing twice. That's what the writings of Rabbi Yehuda Ayash say. Rabbi Yehuda Ayash, was a rabbi in Algeria who was, I, I think I mentioned him too here before. He wrote a number of books. His rulings in Algeria were the final word of law. He came to a, the country and he standardized Kitubot, he standardized Gitin, he standardized business contracts until, until today. The Jews of Algeria who are particular about Algerian tradition are adamant that everything the Bet Yudah said, that's how they do it. Ashkenazim and Ashkenazim in Jerusalem they still do their original custom, which is to recite Shekhyanu on both days. What would you think the Ashkenazim in Israel would do? What has he told us in the past about Ashkenazim in Jerusalem? Rabbi Shantov Gagin has told us in the past that Ashkenazim in Jerusalem very often do things like the Sephardim. And so here he's telling you that in Jerusalem, the Ashkenazim who normally do things like the Sephardim about this thing, they still do like the Ashkenazim and they recite the blessing twice. In my community, so we have Sephardim and Ashkenazim. We even have Ashkenazim that don't follow the Shulchan Aruch, believe it or not. And when it comes to the second day of Purim, the second day of Purim, the daytime of Purim, the second reading of Purim. When it comes to the second reading of Purim in the morning, I know that I don't recite the Shekhyanu, but the Ashkenazim do. So what do I do? I recite the blessing of Megillah. And right after I finish, I pause, whoever is Ashkenazi in the room, a split second, they recite the Shekhyanu, and I begin reading the Megillah. That way they can say Shekhyanu if they want, but I don't hold them back from fulfilling their Minag, and we don't say Shekhyanu, and we continue reading for it. I don't, I don't intend, I don't purport, that's the word. I don't purport to have all the solutions to how you can have Sephardim and Ashkenazim get rid of all their divisions and make sure that everything is the same and, and conform to the same halal. I don't, I don't purport to have that answer. What I do think though is that it is time already that in every community, regardless of what they are, Sephardim or Ashkenazim, that the communities are able to cater to different customs, different teachings, different traditions that exist inside of that community and to make sure that everybody feels heard, even if it's not what the kihla is going to be doing. It takes wisdom on the part of the community to, to know, education. 
So maybe wisdom on behalf of the Chacham to educate the community in order to understand that there are many flavors in this rainbow and it's time that in one kihila all kinds of people should be able to feel a part of something. Is there a limit to that? Of course. The wider you stretch something, so more people will fall out and that's not always the case that you want to create. But at the very least, I don't know of a kihila in the world. So I have not been to a kihila in the world where it's all Savagadim or all Ashkenazim. I, I, anywhere, I mean, anywhere. Even when I was praying with the, the, the Hasidim of Williamsburg, so there are Sephardim there, myself included. <laughs> and when I was praying with the most gung ho Sephardim you can imagine, there's Ashkenazim in the room too. So I'm not saying every opinion that someone might possibly have in the room, it's impossible to cater to everybody. But this division between Sephardim and Ashkenazim, there are so many clever solutions that exist already. How to make everything work, most of everything work, at least on a Kila level. I've been to Batei Knesset, where if you're a Sephardi or you're Ashkenazi, you can't read from the Torah, you can't read the Haftarah, you can't because of the accent, or when you say Kaddish, you say it quietly. Because, you know, we have in our Hashem, our Kilah, everybody is, is, not everyone's Jewish, but many people are Jewish. You come up to read the Haftarah, you read it in Yemenite, you read it in, in Sephardi, you read it in Ashkenazi, you read it in Moroccan, everybody still follows along. It's time that you can have such a world in which we're not, we're not living in Baghdad or in, in Aleppo or in Sana in Yemen or, or in Vilna or, or Radin in Poland. We're, we're living already together for dozens and dozens and dozens of years. It's time that we stop pretending we don't understand each other and let each other exist in the spaces that we have. Chavgimen, 23. This one for me is the most important one we're going to do today because it's going to take me onto a tangent, and hopefully you'll give me the time to do this tangent on Chav Gimel. Sephardim Be'aret Yisrael. The Sephardim of Eretz Yisrael. V'teman, and in Yemen. Ha'kohanim v'varchim b'nesiyat kapayim b'chol yom shacharit. The Kohanim say, Berkat Kohanim, every single morning in the Bera Knesset. They go to the front and they say, Berkat Kohanim. Uvayom Shesh Musaf, and in any day that has Musaf. Ashkenazim, Dafka Biyom Tov. And Ashkenazim, they only recite Berkat Kohanim on Yom Tov. Yes? Now, what do Ashkenazim call Berkat Kohanim? They call it to duchen, duchenin. You heard this word duchenin? You know what I'm talking about? Duchen. Yeah. What is a duchenin? Long time I didn't know that. A duchan, duchan is the platform which the Kohanim used to stand. So if you go to the duchan, then you must be duchenin. Because a duchan, and that's why is a duchen, duchen is duchenin, and that's where the word comes from. So if someone asks you, uh, how do I know? So can I said, are you guys duchenin today? I don't know. Duchening today? Oh, you mean we're doing Berkat Kohanim today? Yes, we're doing If we have a Kohen, we'll do Berkat Kohanim. Now it's known that Sephardim do Berkat Kohanim every day. And when there's Musaf, then also by Musaf. And by Ashkenazim, they only do Berkat Kohanim on Yom Tov. Maybe even the three Regalim. I don't know if Yom Tov. Now tell me a few exceptions to that rule. Anyone familiar with Ashkenazim of Israel, or at least of Jerusalem? Very good. Ashkenazim in Eretz Israel do Berkat Kohanim every single day. I have heard of some groups of Ashkenazim outside of Jerusalem that don't, but from what I know, the Ashkenazim in Israel do Berkat Kohanim every day. I once had to spend a Shabbat in a random Chabad house somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And maybe for you it's the middle of somewhere, for me it was the middle of nowhere. And I'm sitting in this bit of Knesset and I guess it, was, it wasn't developed to be a learning center. It was meant to be a praying center. And so there's only so much of the Sidhu that you can learn when you're looking at the Sidhu. I was looking for a book to study. And I found on one of the shelves, some tourist who must have come through here, he lost a book, A Hundred Reasons Why Ashkenazim Do Not Recite Berkat Kohanim Outside of Land of Israel. I was, wow, finally somebody has an answer for me. I took the book. I don't remember not even one answer from the hundred answers that were written there. But I remember that every answer got worse and worse and worse, and I feel like the last two or three answers 
He just wrote them down because he had to promise he was going to give you 100 answers. He had to give you 100 answers even if they were the most far-fetched answers you could possibly come up with. So here we're going to see in the notes, אהההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההההה
bring a whole uh, Bishop for a whole bunch of reasons why they do Rukat Kohanim every day. Why not every day? The Ramah says perhaps that because the people are running to work and, and they're so busy, they're not happy and you can only do Berkat Kohanim out of happiness. And so you can only do Berkat Kohanim on days that you don't work. Uh, I don't know. This is an interesting reason to push off a mitzvah of blessing the Jewish people. I didn't want to get today into the whole discussion of why or why not. I wanted to focus on why London and Amsterdam. Why in Amsterdam there is a custom that is related to Shabtai Tzvi. Being that we've discussed Shabtai Tzvi together in the past, I think that it's fitting that we discuss it again now. And that's going to be um, on page 2, 3, 4 of your PDF. 4 of your PDF at the bottom of the page. You see that? It says Reshchaf Dalet at the top. Alright. Tam Shebe London Ve Amsterdam. The reason why in London and Amsterdam. Oh, they're nice. Is that, is that what you find out? That there's a. They started doing it again every week? Yeah, I, I thought they did it every week at Lauderdale, and I just asked my friend who works there, and he said, no, it's the whole community does it. They had a referendum on it in the 90s. So now every Shabbat or every... every when you say every week, you mean every Shabbat or every weekday? Oh, every Shabbat, not every weekday. Not every weekday, okay, fine. That's, that's, okay, that's important. So let's see this. Tam London, thank you. Tam London of Amsterdam, Enam nosim kapehem ekoanim b'chol yom. The reason why they don't say Berkat Kohanim every day, Listen, I'm only reading to you what Bishop Tov Gagin writes. I don't mean any disparaging remarks to anybody. It was very difficult for them to gather a minyan during the week. There are some people who were Shabbat desecrators in public because they had to work for their Pranasah. And therefore it became problematic how you count Kohanim, which Kohanim... Which people? And in London, they left the custom that they only say Berkat Kohanim on Yom Tov. The reason so that in the same Kohanim that don't observe Shabbat today are the same ones that don't do it on Shabbat. So what's the difference? Because they wanted to make sure that at least the Jewish people wouldn't forget Berkat Kohanim. And from the writings of the Abu Raham, it seems that the Minhag was to say Berkat Kohanim every day in Spain. I wrote a Teshuvah many, many years ago uh, to my community, an old community, not this one, about whether or not Kohanim, who are not observant of Shabbat, can say Berkat Kohanim. The only thing that invalidates a Kohen from saying Berkat Kohanim are Averot that stop him from being a Kohen. Like, for example, what stops a Kohen from being a Kohen? They marry, uh, they marry a divorcee. Okay. They marry someone they're not allowed to marry. The Kohen temporarily loses his status of Kohen. That's the only thing that can make him not say Berkat Kohanim. I wrote a Teshuvah there with many sources. Now, of course, there are those who disagree. I'm not saying the community is wrong. But uh, that a person, a Kohen who comes to Beit Knesset, believes in Akadosh Baruch Hu, but doesn't observe Shabbat, can say Berkat Kohanim. They didn't invalidate their Kihuna because of that. At the bottom of the page, and I'm certain that whoever makes those clips about me is going to use this little tidbit to make another one. Tam, the reason, Shabbat Amsterdam, that in Amsterdam, Nohagim ad hayom, that they have a custom until today, Shabbat Nosim Kapem, Bechol Yom Shabbat, Shacharit, Musaf, top of the next page, that they recite Berkat Kohanim every day, every Shabbat, by Shachrit and Musaf, Asher Loken be London, that, that's different from the custom of London that just does Biyom Tov. Pitron Hashena Azot, I found the answer to this question, why there's a discrepancy between Spanish Portuguese of Amsterdam and the Spanish Portuguese of London. Mitzatiya Katu B'divrehem Me Yisrael, I found it in the writings of the history of the Jews of Gretz, as you pronounce them, Gretz, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, he has a history of the Jews. Vacherim Imon, others wrote with him. Shekatvu, they wrote a sibalazer. The reason for it, quote, min hayom shetau hasefaradim b'amsterdam achar mishichiyuto shoshab tezvi. From the day the sefaradim went after the false Mashiach shoshab tezvi, amru hatoim bekarov naalet ziona. These those who strayed 
They said very soon we will be going up to Tzion, and the temple will be rebuilt. And the Kohanim will return to their service. They began this custom of saying Berkat Kohanim every Shabbat as a preparation that Shabbat Tzvi was going to take them back to Jerusalem very soon. He wrote this though hearsay. He did not know of a source for these words. And I, says Rabbi Shem Gagin, because I love you, the reader, so much, I will bring you proof that this is the reason why in Amsterdam they say Bikat Kohanim every Shabbat. Remember he told us he went to Amsterdam last week? I went to go study from them their customs, not from their writings, from them. I met the secretary of the community, he should be remembered for good. And after I demanded to figure out why in Amsterdam they say Berkat Kohanim every Shabbat and in London they don't, he showed me a handwritten manuscript, written in Portuguese. And in this book, the historian of the Sephardic community of Amsterdam records, the author of this book is Rabbi David Franco Mendes. This manuscript was written by hand in the year 1769. I have access to a manuscript you don't have access to. And I'm telling you that in the handwritten manuscript in the Portuguese, uh, in, in the Portuguese language, in page 94, it says, and I can't read Portuguese, so I'm going to skip straight to the Hebrew translation of this paragraph. I mean, I can read trans uh, Portuguese, I'm sure. I just, uh, I'll sound like someone who doesn't know Portuguese, and I won't be able to translate it anyways. This is the Hebrew translation. Thank you, Rabbi Shem Tov. They instituted Bekat Kohanim, Laomor Bechon Shabbat, to say it every Shabbat, Shelo Haya Milfanim Minhag Laomor Bechon Tov, because the original Spanish Portuguese Minhag was only to say it on Yom Tov. Vechol Hayladim Asher Yaldu Bishanazo. And this year, the same year that they instituted to say Bekat Kohanim every Shabbat, they made a decree that all the children that we born this year, Yikiru Bishem Shabtai will be called Shabtai, Al-Shem Shabtai Tzvi, named after Shabtai Tzvi, or Natan, or they'll call him Natan, Al-Shem Natan Ha'azati, after Nathan of Gaza. So in the same entry that talks about instituting Berkat Kohanim every Shabbat, is also the institution to respect Shabtai Tzvi and Natan of Gaza, his prophet, by naming all the children in the community after him. So it's very interesting to me actually, in London, why in the 90s they had a referendum to go back to this minhag? I'm not sure. Um, I'm sure they had their reasons. Big uh, ran the community. I'm just wondering if they, I'm certain they're familiar with the Shemtov Gagin's writings too. So, I don't know, it's something we should look into. Can you, can you confirm, is the minhag in which community it was it instituted in the 90s? Which uh, community was it? Was it, was it across the board in London by like? Uh, the it? Spanish Portuguese community of London. Is that correct, Linus? Yeah, so. yeah, this doesn't include every single Sephardic synagogue in in London, but the ones which are under the umbrella of Spanish and Portuguese. Correct. So the, the Spanish Portuguese Quilot, there's a few of them, they are uh, they, they are now saying Berkat Konim every Shabbat because of this. I can imagine that in the other Sephardic synagogues, they're saying Berkat Kohanim every day. Presumably if they have Kohanim. Let me read you one more, one more paragraph. And after I was looking, I found in the book Ohel Yaakov of Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas. I've spoken to you about him in the past. Who was Rabbi Yaakov Sasportas? Isn't there a book about him that calls him like the, the rebel rabbi? Very good. I, I, mentioned to you I mentioned to you last time a book about Professor Dweck uh, called The Dissident Rabbi. That's what really nice. Good memory. Ah, uh, yeah. That's what I mean. The Dissident yeah. Rabbi. Um, 
Because that's really what he was. I mean, he was the, the, the man who stood up to the whole Shabtai Tzvi movement. I, like I told you then, you could count the names of the rabbis who stood up against Shabtai Tzvi on your hand and have many, many fingers left over. It should be a very humbling moment for the Jewish people to, before they blame everybody else for all kinds of false beliefs and run witch hunts against the Jewish people. Uh, most likely your great-grandparents were also uh, followers of Shabtai Tzvi. I'm not saying you, I don't want to say it. Just a little bit of humility would go a long way. Then he writes, I'm skipping a few lines. You asked me, said Rabbi Yaakov, to support us about Berkat Kohanim. That they say Berkat Kohanim every Shabbat. He says, this happened because of Shabtai Tzvi, because in our communities, they only say Berkat Kohanim and Yom Tov when everyone is happy. And the moment the Jews got so happy because they thought their Mashiach was coming, they instituted the Berkat Kohanim in Shabbat. Look at what Yaakov Sasportas discusses over there. He wants to figure out whether or not we should get rid of the Shabbat Berkat Kohanim so as not to be following a Sabbathian custom anymore. Look over there, what happens in the community, the moment Shabtai Tzvi converts to Islam, there are members of the Spanish-Portuguese community who wish to stop saying Berkat HaKohanim on Shabbat. And some said, no, we can't stop now. Now we started a biblical commandment, how can we stop doing it? And therefore, Rabbi Yaakov reached the conclusion that it's better to let the Kohanim say the Berkat Kohanim on the eve of Shabbat. But in the book, Kitsur Tzitat Novel, for the first time in my life, I bought a copy of this book today, two hours before this class. Bezat Hashem, it will be by me next week in time for the Shi'u. What is the book Kitsur Tzitat Novel? It's a book by Bianco Sospotas against Shabtai Tzvi. The main one is called Tzitzat Novel, but it was such a big book that they made an abridged version. Maybe he made an abridged version. Called Kitsur Tzitzat Novel. The abridged version of the book against Shabtai Tzvi. Katav, he writes there, Shakahal be Amsterdam, that the community of Amsterdam, they say Berkat Kohanim every Shabbat, because of Shabtai Tzvi. The reason they have not taken back their custom is because they don't want to be embarrassed that they once upon a time believed in Shabtetzvir. He says that because they already started, even though they don't believe in Shabtetzvir anymore, they continued because now they're doing it out of piety. They, they initially didn't stop because they didn't want to give in about Shabbat Tzvi. But now, now they really want to just fulfill the biblical commandment of saying, Birkat Kohanim. And the people of the Ma'amad, they wanted to push the community to go back to the original custom. They didn't want to leave the Birkat Kohanim every Shabbat. Because the leaders of the community, the Ma'amad, they felt that if they were to leave the Berkat Kohanim every Shabbat, it would forever be a stain on the reputation of the community. And every time they would do Berkat Kohanim every Shabbat, they would remember that their ancestors believed in Shabbatetzvi. They also wanted to get rid of it in the next page because of the time that it takes up of the community. And the top right of the page, but the rabbis of that generation, Amsterdam, the opinions of the rabbis in Amsterdam was no matter which reason you started doing this minhag, now you started doing a mitzvah, and we're not allowed to get you to stop doing a mitzvah. And because of that, in Amsterdam, the minhag was to recite the Berkat Konim every Shabbat, even after they stopped believing in Shabbat Tzvi.
I promise you, I promise you one more paragraph, but really I have one more. Just Rabbi Yaakov Saspotas, a brief biography, so you can remember him and know who he was. Rabbi Shadok again gives you a biography about him in one paragraph. Look in the bottom, in the middle of the page. Because Rabbi Yaakov Saspotas was such a great rabbi, says Rabbi Shadok again, I wish to include here a brief biography of him in one paragraph. Rabbi Yaakov Saspot nolad be'algir. He was born in Algir, be'ir wa'aran. Bishnat elif shesh moshmaraisa. He was born in 1618 in Algir. He was the greatest opponent of the Sabbatheans. Niftar be'amsterdam. He passed away in Amsterdam in the year 1698. He was a descendant of Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman. Nachman it is. Uvayoto ben Ted Shanim. And when he was nine years old, he was brilliant already in Talmud and Halakha. When he was 24 years old, they made him the rabbi of Tlemcen. Where is Tlemcen? He writes here in Morocco. It could be the borders change all the time. But Tlemcen is where Rabbi Yosef Masas was the rabbi in Algeria. So their paths crossed hundreds of years apart, but it's the same place. Then he was a rabbi in a few other cities like Fez and Morocco. Bishnat, in the year 62 to 63, he became the chief rabbi of England. And he was the first chief rabbi of the Sephardim in London. And because of the plague that had broken out in London, when he became the rabbi of Shar HaShamayim community of London, he moved from London to Hamburg. In the year 1673, he moved to Amsterdam. And they appointed him to the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshivat Keter Torah, that the Pinto brothers had founded. Bishnat, in the year 1675, he became the Rosh Yeshiva and the Dayan of Livono, perhaps one of the most prominent Sephardic cities in the world. And any rabbi who held that job of the rabbi in Livono was a Chida, was a rabbi in Livono. Rabbi Eliyahu ben Amozeg later became a rabbi in Livono. These are some tremendous Chachamim that sat in the city of Livono. Uvishnat, in the year 1680, he returned to Amsterdam as the Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshiva Tzchaim. And Rabbi Tzchak Abu Hav was chosen to replace him after he passed away in 1693. There are two Rabbi Tzchak Abu Havs, so don't get confused between them. He stayed there until the day he died. And when he was living in Hamburg in that time where he had fled London from the plague, that was the generation, that was, those were the years where Shabtai Tzvi really took over. He dragged behind him thousands of people. And even some of the greatest rabbis believed in him as is known. He stood up against them with all his strength. He didn't give in, he never gave in. And I think that it's something, whenever we talk about things here, this Chiu, this Ben Midrash, we always feel like, who are we in comparison to all of the thousands of people who believe, who do, who, who have communities, who, yeshivot and institutions? And, and I ask you the same question. Who was Rabbi Yaakov Sasbotas? For sure we know he was a giant, Tamikhan, one of our greatest leaders. But when he was standing up against the whole world, screaming his face blue, and fellow Talmidei Chachamim were leading the Jewish people into the valley of death that was Shabtai Tzvi. He never gave up. Bitter he might have been. Afraid for the future of the Jewish people? Certainly. But he didn't give up. And perhaps it was because he could not give up. Had he not spoken, who knows where we would be today, if we would be today. And I think that the title Dissident Rabbi is such a great title. Because really that's the job, that's the task of every Jewish person on this earth. Our forefather, who were supposed to be like Avraham Avinu. Avraham was known not just as Avraham our forefather, but as Avraham Ha'ivri. And many say Avraham Ha'ivri ever, Avraham the contrarian. Maybe Avraham was the first dissident rabbi. 
And Avraham Avinu, he taught us that no matter what the world says, and no matter what everybody thinks, and this imagined everybody, by the way, as if everybody is some homogenous group that's up against you. But let's pretend it's us and them. But it doesn't make a difference how many of us there are. It could be that it will just be because of those few who choose not to run after everyone else, that there will be a Judaism left for the people that come after us, for the generations that come after us. And sometimes it's people like Rabbi Yaakov Sasbaldas that give me my greatest hope. That say, with just a few good people, we'll be able to change the whole world. And we might not live to see it. Maybe, hopefully. But it's so it's such a positive feeling to know. Now we're in the company of great people who stood up against all the things they knew to be false and left a Judaism that we can all be proud of today in the year 2021. I wish you a beautiful evening. Thank you so much for learning with me, B'zalat Hashem. I will stick around to answer any questions anybody has. But if you need to go, let it open. I look forward to seeing you next week. Hopefully already next week in Yerushalayim, Yerah Kodesh. I don't want to be doing another year in San Diego. So God willing, this Tisha B'Av, we won't even have to mourn. We'll be celebrating together in the holy city of Yerushalayim. B'zalat Hashem, B'zalat.